there is all kinds of wisdom at work in the world. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but there's always different opinions, different ways of doing things, different ways that people suggest that you do things. Um, I appreciated this. I saw this on, uh, uh, borrowing this from one of our church folks' Facebook pages, but I like this bit of advice that due to the recent increase in bear sightings, and there have been many of those around us in the lake area, the Missouri Department of Conservation is advising hikers, hunters, golfers, and fishermen to take extra precautions and to keep alert for bears while in the wilds. They advise that people wear noise-producing devices, such as little bells on their clothing, to alert but not startle the bears that are not expecting to see people in their habitat. And so they also invite outdoorsmen to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity. Outdoorsmen should recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. Black bear droppings are smaller and contain a, a lot of berry seeds and squirrel fur. Grizzly bear droppings have little bells in it and smell like pepper spray. So uh, I, I, that's a good piece, of, good piece of advice, all right? So, uh, um, <clears throat> so there are lots of pieces of advice. We should just stop right there. How about that? Um, there's lots of pieces of advice. And uh, as we continue today in our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, we come to chapter 2. And if you were just to open up 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and begin to read it without any context, without anything before it or after it, if you're like me, at least, you're going to scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on here? I don't understand this. I don't get all this. Paul is talking about things, and, and I just don't understand exactly what he's talking about. And so I'm thankful that, it, first of all, it has a chapter before it and after it that we're going to kind of bring into our conversations today. But also the theme that it introduces, the idea of wisdom, uh, which is a big idea in, in 1 Corinthians. Wisdom is not only spoken of in... Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, the Bible presents to us throughout its pages that there are two kinds of wisdom at work in the world in which you and I live. And James summarizes these quite well in James chapter 3, verses 13 and following, when he kind of gives a pretty clear picture of what these wisdoms look like. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. All right, so that's one category of wisdom that is at work in the world. But for where jealousy continues, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil and every vile practice. But, and then he gives us the other side. The wisdom from above is first pure, and it is peaceable, it is gentle, it is open to reason, it is full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so he gives us these pictures of the fruits of these wisdom. And so oftentimes you can look at a situation, see what kind of wisdom is at work here. Is it, is it producing jealousy and selfish ambition and, and conflict and strife and all the things with that? Or is it producing that gentler, softer version of, of experience? And so with those contrasts in mind, I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul talks to the church in Corinth about how this wisdom is playing itself out in their congregation. 
And I think it's important to look at that because they were a church. Corinth was a place that was very, very uh, hungry to be impressed. They were a place that, that they loved it when you wowed them with eloquent speech or you wowed them with, with a, a deep thought. They just loved to be impressed in that way. And so Paul comes and he says to be careful with that because your, uh, your love of being impressed, your love of worldly wisdom is causing trouble in your church. I read a devotion this morning, actually, that there are two things that bring and hold together the people of God. It is a cross and a throne. It's the cross of Christ and the throne of Christ that he sits upon at the end of Scripture. It is a cross that Jesus died on and a throne that he sits on. And, and those two things anchor the Christian in their thought life and their living life and in everything about them. And at any time that we try to bring extra things into that, it always produces strife and conflict and, and division and all kinds of things. And so Paul, if you remember, it's, we're kind of, we've kind of done fits and spurts here with 1 Corinthians, but I want to go back and just remind you that 1 Corinthians 2 does not stand by itself. In fact, it's part of a section that in your Bible is basically from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4. It's all one big argument that Paul is making um, about this issue of division and strife and the attitudes, more importantly, behind that. There is selfishness, there is pride at work, there's all kinds of things. So let me go back and remind you, we looked at this maybe three weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 and just remind you of what Paul is talking about as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he goes on to give greater detail about some of you. You're dividing over your favorite preacher, your favorite apostles. And some of you love Paul and some of you love Apollos and some of you love Peter. And, and some of you arrogantly just say, well, I'm just a Jesus guy. I don't need those other people. And so there's this division, but it's all rooted in this arrogant and prideful attitude that exists in them. And so in the chapters that follow then, um, you really find Paul just kind of unpacking this case for humility, this case for these things ought not to be because you're bringing a worldly wisdom into a situation that demands godly wisdom. And so Paul is trying to make a point about how the Corinthian Christians can overcome this divisive spirit that is at work in their church and if you forget this, this passage gets very confusing very fast. And so um, here's what Paul is doing. And I wrote this out. You don't have to write this down. You may not even do that anyway. But you know, I, just, I thought I would put this on the screen here so we can all kind of see what we're talking about here. Paul is confronting an arrogance at work in them that causes them to seek after and employ a worldly wisdom that appeals to their flesh. In other words, it is self-seeking, it is self-centered, it is self-pleasing, self-serving. It is all about the self and what they want, right? But it does not resemble, and that word is important, the life of godly wisdom they are called to by the cross of Jesus. The, the cross of Jesus, again, throughout this book, if you just underline every time Paul makes a reference to the cross or to the Jesus of the cross and the attitude and the spirit that that ought to produce in the life of a believer, you're going to underline a lot of things in this book because Paul is constantly attacking a selfish arrogance that is always with us and always we must combat and fight against as he is trying to draw them towards a godly wisdom that is rooted 
in the person and the example of Jesus, of the Jesus of the cross, right? Not the Jesus of the miracles and the, the crowds, but the Jesus of the cross. And so he confronts this arrogance and divisive spirit, and 1 Corinthians 2 fits into that argument of what he's talking about. So I'm going to give you my points here at the, at the beginning. Um, that way, in case you're really sleepy or you need to worry, figure out what's, what am I getting my mom for Mother's Day because I forgot. I'm going to give you some time if you need that. All right. But here's the three things. It's really three words, but they're longer sentences. So I've highlighted, or, um, highlighted, I guess, the words that are probably the most important here. Here's the three things I think that we want to see out of 1 Corinthians 2. And I think this applies to every mom here. This applies to every one of us, though, in, in our relationship at a practical level of how do I approach the problems and the challenges and the issues of my world and my life, more importantly. And so here's the three things. The wise, number one, with, and again, godly wisdom, face their problems and challenges with, number one, a humility that trusts in the power of God, not in the performance of people. Paul is going to show us an example from his own life of how it's his humility of realizing that this is not me. I am not planting churches. I am not causing people to be Christians. That is God's work. I am simply, as we're going to get to next, next week in chapter three, I'm simply a farmer and a builder. That's all I am. I'm planting seeds and watering seeds. God is doing this, right? So there's a humility that Paul lived with from that wisdom. And so he's not going to exalt himself. He's not going to push himself forward saying, this is all about me. There's a humility that simply trusts in the power of God, not in the performance of people. So that's the first paragraph we're going to look at. The second thing is, there's an eternal perspective that sees past the fleeting wisdom of this age. The second paragraph we're going to read here, Paul just makes this point that there is a wisdom that is eternal, rooted in God's plan from before he ever made us and created this world that is there, but there's also a wisdom of this world that is fleeting. And we all wrestle with it. We all see it. It's always at work around us. And so the wise look at their situations, look at their lives, they look at everything in their life with an eternal perspective. How does this decision, how does this, this issue, or how does this thing in my life fit, or what should I do based upon not just what feels good today or what seems to be good in the moment, but what's good eternally? And number three, the mind of Christ is revealed to us by the Spirit of Christ. The wise face their problems and challenges with the mind of Christ. It's like, okay, what would Jesus think of this? What would Jesus do with this? And the mature Christian is a person who is constantly having their mind trained to think more and more like Jesus. And so, and again, the Spirit, we're going to get to that paragraph where really through the revelation that God gives to the apostles and everything that we build our lives upon through the Word of God, the mind of Christ ought to be growing and shaping our arts so that we look more and more like Christ. And so that's a picture of what godly wisdom looks like, I think, in, in reality. It's, there's a humility. There's an eternal perspective. It's the mind of Christ. It's not like, what does my favorite commentator say about it? It's what does Jesus say about it? Uh, and that's the important thing. And so that's what wisdom looks like, I think, in, in, uh, in practical ways. So let's go on here, and now let's read our text, um, and we're going to read through this and make a few comments in between the paragraphs here, but I want to go back into chapter 1, verse 28, so that we get a running start into chapter 2, because when Paul wrote this letter, he did not put chapter 2 in there. Those are things added later, and so Paul would have gone straight from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3 with no thought of anything, with no divisions. He would have just gone straight through, as you would, a letter that you write to someone else. And so, this is what it says in chapter 1, verse 28 and following. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So again, there's that wisdom at work in the world, God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom, so that no human human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God and his work and his wisdom, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, your past, present, and future are all secured, not by you, but by what God is doing in your life through Jesus Christ. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts not boast in my goodness or in my performance or in anything about me, but may I boast in the Lord and what the Lord has done for me. All right, so he says that, and then we get to chapter two, where Paul begins in these three paragraphs to kind of draw some things out. Now, we need to note that I saw a shirt yesterday. I was at a thing that said, if uh, I, something to the effect of, I wish sarcasm burned calories. Um, and I appreciated that shirt because I have a sarcastic streak in me, um, which doesn't always serve me well. Um, but, um, but Paul has some sar- a sarcastic streak in him as well. Because he's going to say some things here that by the time you get to the first verse of chapter 3, um, you're going to find out that Paul is really, he's kind of being a little sarcastic with them because they think they're pretty good. They're, they're arrogance. They think they're pretty wise. They think they've got this figured out in all their divisions and their camps. But Paul's going to remind them, I think again through these contrasts that he's going to bring, and each paragraph has a different contrast, and, and by the time we get to the end of it, I think he's kind of poking at them a little bit. You think you're all this stuff. But really, you're, you're leaning on a false wisdom. It is going to not lead you where you want to go. And so as you read the next three paragraphs, be on the lookout for the contrast in each one of them. So here's paragraph number one, which brings about the issue of humility. Note how Paul leaned on humility um, as he served and as, even as he planted this church in Corinth. <clears throat> First Corinthians 2 verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers... Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in, note these words, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. In other words, he didn't wow them with his presentation of, oh, wow, he's, Paul is so sharp and smart. He came and he simply brought Jesus to them. And so he didn't wow them. Again, Corinth was a place where you could go to every street corner and find some eloquent speaker who would just wow you with just the way they said things. And that was not Paul. But it came instead in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so paragraph number one ends. So again, that theme of a humility that trusts in the power of God doesn't trust in the performance of people. So Paul highlights the humble trust that he had in God's power over his own futile attempts to impress others with his own wisdom and strength. And that's a temptation that all of us have, is to impress others, right? Is to try to wow them or convince someone by, by our eloquence or by our greatness. And I don't think Paul went around, he wasn't lazy, He didn't do sloppy work. This is not an excuse for doing bad work or being a bad preacher. I think it's about where his heart was at. As he opened his mouth and began to talk to the people of Corinth about this Jesus, who they had never heard many of them heard of, um, what was he trusting in to do the work? Was it himself and his own wit and humor or his wow factor? It was not that. 
Paul came and he simply trusted that God would do the work through the gospel of Jesus Christ as he simply put it out there in the lives of people. And so let's talk about Paul for a second. Um, I heard a thing this week that pointed me in this direction of this that I really liked. What's your image of Paul when you think of Paul? When you think of Paul, if you get a mental image of Paul, what, maybe what comes to mind? Maybe it's words that, like he's heroic, he's bold, he's got to be a strong man, he's, he's, he's smart, he's probably bigger than life kind of thing. There's a statue of Paul at the Vatican in Rome um, that is 18 feet tall. I think there's actually a picture of it here. Maybe, maybe we have a picture of it. There it is. It's an 18 foot tall statue with a nine foot long sword. And on that scroll is written Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so that's the kind of guy, if that dude walks into your city and says, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus and you need to believe in this guy, that guy's probably going to win a few people over because of his impressiveness because of his stature. But when you begin to look at Scripture and look at the other things around Paul's time that were said about him, I don't think that statue quite captures Paul's life. Paul would later write a second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and he would talk about how some of the slander that was said about him in the public square or in the church as people attacked him and his, uh, his apostleship, or they talked about he's not much to look at, he's not a great eloquent speaker, he's not all these things. And, and Paul says, you're right, I'm not those things. There's a first century text that um, it kind of gives a description of Paul and who he was and what he looked like with these words that he was a man of middling size. I don't know what middling size means, but I think he, he's not tall, right? He's not 18 foot tall statue, right? He's middling. So I don't, I don't think they mean that as a compliment necessarily. He's a man of middling size. His hair was scanty. Don't look at anybody right now, but you know what that means, right? His hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were projecting. So get the picture of kind of like a, a bony, kind of not a, not a physically imposing individual, right? He had large eyes and his eyebrows met, which we call that today a unibrow, right? So that, that looks going on for Paul, right? And his nose was somewhat long. And so, and the, and the quote finishes with this compliment though, all those things about Paul but he was full of grace and mercy. So he's a nice guy, right? Ugly as a mud fence, but he's a nice guy. There's that thing, okay? And so, again, you get that picture, right? So Paul did not walk into Corinth with flashing lights that would have said, see me, notice me, don't you want to get to know me, right? He would not have come into Corinth with that. But the description that you get of Paul is a man, and in his own words, not only physically was he not impressive, but he says in his own words, when I came to Corinth, I was weak, I was afraid, I was broken. He had struggled a few weeks ago. We looked at some of those struggles that led him into that. In fact, Jesus had to give him a little pep talk to say, hey, you keep preaching, you keep doing this because I have many people in this city and I know it's hard and they're gonna threaten you, it's gonna be scary, but you keep going. And so he came in a lot of weakness, but that didn't stop Paul from just simply going and trusting in, having a humility that says, God, I am nothing right now. I am broken, I am empty, I am hurting, but I'm going to go do this work because I trust not in myself, but I trust in the power of God to work through the gospel of Jesus Christ to do a work in the hearts of people. And he did, and that's what he did. You see, Paul came with one clear thing. He had this unstoppable faith in the dead and resurrected Jesus and he wanted everybody to hear that. 
no matter whether he was impressive to you or not, that's the one thing he wanted you to know, is that Jesus died for your sins and he rose to give new life. And that in him we can have life. And, and they tried to shut him up in so many ways, but he would not be silenced. And so he had this tenacious faith in, in the power of God to work through the gospel as it was shared. But personally, he, he had this humility. And so I think that's it's instructive to us. Because oftentimes you and I come and we think, well, I have to be somebody. Uh, several years ago, I think the article I looked up, it was like 2015 maybe, um, it was that Ben Affleck and a few other people that he works with were looking to produce a movie on the life of Paul. And they had lined up Hugh Jackman to play Paul, right? So think of what I just said. And Hugh Jackman is going to play the character of Paul. Because what is that? That's worldly wisdom that says if Paul's going to have this kind of impact all over the Roman world, to turn the world upside down with Christianity, he must have been an impressive person because that's worldly thinking. Only impressive people can do impressive things in the world. But that's farthest from the truth. Paul came in humility and brokenness, but with a tenacious faith in the dead and resurrected Jesus and the life that he now lived because of that. And so this humility led to God working in a mighty way. The scripture says in several places that, that God humbles the proud, but what does he do with the humble? He exalts them. He uses them. He is present in the place of humility. And so in your life and in my life, we all have daily interactions with people. And we can get so caught up in the performance game, in the impressive, impressive game. I have to impress people. I have to perform for people. And, and again, I'm not saying we should be lazy or lethargic. I'm not saying that. But we can get such a focus on, well, the only way that God will do anything good to my life is if I perform or if, I, if I'm exceptional. What God really wants is great faith. He wants you to believe deeply and to live passionately out of the dead and resurrected Jesus at work in your life and the humility that comes with that that produces godly fruit. And so whether you're a mom or someone else who feels like, you know what, I just don't feel like I cut it against all the things that I compete with in the world's just look at Paul. You may come in weakness and frailty and brokenness, but just understand that God used that to do incredible things. God used Paul's humility as Paul trusted in the power of God and not in the performance of people, whether himself or others. And so there's a humility that the wise live from and live with. And so God's power came through a message about an executed Jewish man and claimed to be a Messiah and that God did great work in that. And then Paul continues to write about, that's not, the, he describes this wisdom at work in, in, in the second paragraph, which again talks about this, not just humility, but they live with this eternal perspective, this different view of, the, of reality in the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.6, Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom Although it is not, excuse me, I should read the text correctly. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And again, that word mature, again, remember the little sarcasm thing I mentioned about Paul? I think he's attacking them because these Corinthians think they are very smart. They think they are very mature because they've got it all figured out in their own wisdom. Yet Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are all doomed to pass away. 
But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And when you see those words secret and hidden, that doesn't mean you have to go searching for them. It means they've been hidden in ages past. Ephesians talks about the mystery of the gospel. Uh, It doesn't mean it's something that only select few people find. It's that it's something that's been hidden in the past and now is revealed through Jesus Christ. So we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. And if you have a Bible, you should circle this little phrase, for our glory. Think of all the things that are encompassed in that. The forgiveness of sin, the hope of of heaven eternal, the life, the, the transformation, the way that God works in our life. And so none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's an interesting phrase. The rulers of this age, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They understood this principle of how God was going to work through a a Jewish man in the backwoods of a no-place place like Palestine. That God was going to transform the eternal fortunes of all who would turn to him. The rulers of this age thought, that's crazy talk. It's foolish. Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians. For those who don't believe, they think we're fools. This is foolishness to them who don't believe but to those who do believe, the, the, the cross is this message of hope and power for a life. And so think of that. Think of Satan. Do you think Satan, as he thought, as he triumphed in victory, as he thought Jesus was dead and gone, would he have gone with, through with the crucifixion had he known that that very act of defeat would actually be the salvation of, of every person of faith's soul? Uh, the Jewish people, um, they fought desperately to keep Jesus, the Jewish leaders, I should say, kept fought passionately to keep Jesus in that tomb because they thought they, would, they could get rid of him. Only that what they were doing was setting up his resurrection, which would transform the lives of so many. The Romans, they had all the power, but eventually that power faded as the cross and the crucified Jesus rose in prominence. And so he finishes in verse 9. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul talks about how the Spirit has revealed to the apostles of all the things that, that they are now preaching, the things that connect all the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus and now um, into the church. <clears throat> and so there's this eternal perspective that Paul lives with. And so when you read Paul's story and you find him facing persecution, you find people threatening to kill him. I love Philippians 1 where he talks about he's sitting in a prison cell. He knows that with just one order, the governor, the ruler could execute him and be done with his life. But he's not worried about that because he looks at life with an eternal perspective. He says, you know what? If they kill me, that's great. I go to be with the Lord. If they leave me here, they let me free that's okay, too, because that means I get to be more, more fruitful ministry for Jesus. That's an eternal perspective. It's not living in fright and fear of all the things that may go wrong in your life. There's an eternal perspective that says, if Jesus is mine and I am Jesus's, then there's this peace and this hope and there's this calmness in my life because that's what an eternal perspective does for us. And so we come to that, and, and I, I, I'm struck by, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. My daughter went home to get this book for me, so I will. She has the book that has all of the Chronicles of Narnia in one book. So it's a large book, so don't be intimidated. If you've never read it, you should read the Chronicles of Narnia if you want to understand the gospel. Because C.S. Lewis draws all these truths, including truths out of 2 Corinthians 5, I think, is, as he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
If you've never read that book, there's a young man named Edmund who betrays his siblings. He's a punk of a kid. He turns on his family just for selfish gain. And the deep magic of Narnia, that where they lived, where this betrayal took place, demands that all who became traitors had to be handed over to the evil witch. And the evil witch then had the right to kill every traitor. And Edmund finds himself there in that dis- dis- uh, discouraging situation. And then Aslan, the Christ figure of the story, the lion steps in. And he tells the witch that he will forfeit his life for Edmund's. So kill me and let Edmund go. And she's happy to take the deal because she wants to get rid of uh, the great king Aslan. And the witch kills Aslan and then goes off to celebrate and conquer the land. But then if you keep reading, the ground starts to shake. And the table that Aslan was killed on begins to shake and breaks in half. And he emerges and is more alive than ever before. And then later when Aslan is talking to the children about what happened there, he says this. And this is why I think Paul draws, he draws this right out of Paul's talk here about a bigger perspective. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a deeper magic that she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she would have looked back a little deeper to the stillness of the darkness before time dawn, she would have had a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So there's that perspective that C.S. Lewis talks about. He uses that in a beautiful way in that book. And that Paul talks about here, there's this perspective that wise, godly wise people live with. It says, you know what? The world is a crazy place. A lot of things in motion. But a Christian always lives with that eternal perspective. And so they live with humility. They live with an eternal perspective. And number three, lastly, and we'll get more into this next week, so we won't spend much time on it. But they live with the mind of Christ that is revealed to us by the Spirit of God. How do you face the problems and challenges of your life? So, Evan, I think these slides are here, but they're not in my notes. No, yes, they are. Hold on. They are here. Hold on. I got lost with Narnia, and I lost place in my notes here. Here we go. Ah, it's there. Verse 11, it says this. Sorry about that. We'll edit that out of the video for later. All right, so um, for <laughs> nobody watches the videos. I'm just kidding. Uh, for who knows? Verse 11 says this. Remember what he just said at the end of verse 10, that the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God? And so I think, well, what's the Spirit of God doing in, for us? Well, who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. Like I said, I can look at you, and you could be very, very attentive. You could have a smile on your face, and I could think, oh, they're enjoying this. But you're just thinking about, oh, I can't wait for lunch later. And so you're smiling over that. So I don't know that, but only you know that because that's the spirit inside of you that knows that. And so the Holy Spirit does that for God. It knows God's heart. It knows the, the mind and the plans of God. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Um, Now the natural person, again, he goes back to that. I think there's a little sarcasm at that aimed at the Corinthians. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, 
but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then here's where I get that little sarcasm thing that I talked about. In verse 3, if you go on to the next verse, and the, the next thing Paul would have written, he said, But I, brothers, could not address you, Corinthian church, as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So again, he begins to dig at them, saying, there's this world over here where we know we are, there's humility and we have this big perspective and, and our minds are becoming like the mind of Christ, but I couldn't talk to you like that because you're not thinking with that kind of wisdom. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. I just want to draw that phrase out because we're going to talk more about this a little bit next week. That simple phrase that we have the mind of Christ. I think godly wisdom is always asking the question, what does Jesus think of this situation? Not just what does my favorite news network say, not just what does my group of friends say, what does the mind and the heart of Jesus say about this thing in my life? And they face their problems and challenges with the mind of Christ that is revealed to us by the Spirit of God. And Paul, the whole New Testament is, is that whole revelation that God re revealed it to them, he inspired them to write it, and now we have it before us so that we know what the mind of Christ is to become more like him, to be transformed, as Paul would later say, by the renewing of our minds. So there's just this simple idea that godly wisdom is always saying, well, what would Jesus think of this? And if you go with that perspective, I guarantee there's going to be moments of tension between, well, my friends say this, the media says this, the world says this, my flesh says this, but Jesus says this. So what do you go with in that moment? The mind of Christ being revealed to us by the Spirit of God leads the wise person in that path. And so today, I just simply would ask, if you're a mom here today, or if you're just all of us, I think this applies in every category of life. What kind of wisdom are you living from? What are you looking to? Does your life portray the fruit of a, of a wisdom that produces a humility? Or does your wisdom produce pride? Does your wisdom produce an eternal perspective or is it simply about what's good for me today? Does your wisdom lead you to think what's, what's the mind of Jesus in this? Or is it just what's the loudest noise I hear from whatever thing I'm listening to today? And Jesus is never a consideration. There's a godly wisdom that Jesus invites us to today. And that Paul invites us to, he, he was told the Corinthians as he preached to them, wrote to them, this will help to eliminate some of those divisions and factions, that this will help you live together in a more peaceful, God-honoring way with a humility and eternal perspective in the mind of Christ at work among you. So I want to pray for us today as we finish here, that God would give us that kind of heart, that we would be that kind of, of people who seek after that kind of godly wisdom. So would you pray with me, please, as we finish? Lord God, we uh, are thankful for Paul's teaching. We thank you for um, the way that you worked and you spoke to us through him. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that you help us to see that there is a way that is futile and that is um, just a losing, a losing path. It's a dead end. Because um, so oftentimes our hearts can be drawn and, and led down a path that is empty. It doesn't lead us to Christ and, and the life that he brings to us. Even Christian people, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, wrestle with this. And so, Father, today, whether it's the moms that we love and want to lift up today, or just all of us, men, women, children alike, God, we need that wisdom. 
May we seek it. May we seek the spirit who gives it. May we seek the the word that gives it to us. May we long to have a godly wisdom. And may it produce that humility of great trust in what you can do, not what we can do. And may it produce an eternal perspective that when the ebbs and flows of life come and, and the big things of life hit us, that yeah, they hurt, but boy, there's this bigger perspective of hope and, and of future and, and God's great plan that steadies us. And may it produce in us just the mind of Jesus that we learn to think in our, in our homes or in our journeys through life and our relationships that we learn to think like Jesus would think. May the mind of Christ grow in us as we humble ourselves and seek after um, what he thinks. So Lord, please do a work in our heart. Please chip away at the, the pride and the, and the hardness of heart that, that worldly wisdom oftentimes builds within us. And so we ask, Father, that you would do that good work in us today. And Lord, if you'd be working today and nudging us and, and working on us, would you help us to be responsive to that? to not ignore your leading in our life. As we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.